All right, it's working. Okay. I drop things. All right, so this morning I'm going to be talking from the scripture from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So, how many of you have ever been disciplined? <laughs> like everybody, you know, hands up, right? <laughs> Kind of a rhetorical question. I'm pretty sure at one point or another, someone told us that we weren't doing the right thing or we needed to stop and whatever. What would you say is the point of discipline? Any ideas? To get us on the right path? Yep. What else? To not get hurt, yes, uh-huh, yeah. Don't touch the stove when it's hot, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Yes. Of the behavior do better. So. Ah, uh huh. So, like, discipline is not just calling a timeout or something, but it's reminding of, hey, in order for you to get to do this, this is what you need to do. Like, you've got to be more attentive in some way. what you spend on cigars so you can go to the beach <laughs> I like that <laughs> it just shows us like some people it would be video games or you know it might be clothes or like I have I I like buying organic food at the grocery store but it's so expensive right so like have you know having to make those decisions of you know do I do something that I think is good for the environment versus am I going to go into debt to buy, you know, an $18 ticket? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> there, yes, there's a discipline in that too. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, when it comes right down to it, we are disciplined because our behavior doesn't match someone's expectation, right? Like, if you're being scolded by a parent or a teacher, it's because our behavior isn't lining up with what's expected. So what do you think are some of the reasons that God disciplines his people? Do you have any examples come to mind? Yeah. 
now? Well, I'll, I'll stick with the Old Testament. Um, so if we look at specifically the prophets, um, there were generally one of two reasons that the prophets were speaking to Israel and Judah. One was idolatry. They had strayed from, uh, from worshiping God, the God that had made covenant with them. Um, or they were treating other people poorly. And it didn't matter if it was other Israelites or people who were not Israelites. Um, God often different, didn't differentiate. Uh, so people strayed away. They might not have been listening to what God was inviting them to. Uh, as what we hear in this particular uh, Isaiah passage, they aren't producing fruit. And if we're you know, looking at the New Testament, I think Paul says something to the effect of, you know, we need to produce fruit worthy of the repentance of the gospel. The idea of producing fruit is something that carries as a theme throughout our scriptures. Now, tell me, how many of you have read Isaiah in the last six months? Anybody? Any part of Isaiah? No. Which is what I expected. Um, it's not one that people are like, yes, I'm going to study this. It's really long um, and it can be kind of confusing. So I'm going to give you a little history, geopolitical background, so we can kind of get into uh, what Isaiah is telling the Israelites. So Isaiah was alive during the time of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, if any of you like Second Kings or First Chronicle or Second Chronicles, those names will be familiar to you. Um, if you don't, they were kings of Judah. So, one of the things that we need to remember in this is when Israel is mentioned, it's talking about the top, the northern ten kingdoms. So, by this point, by the time the prophets had been sent, Isaiah is one of the first ones, I think. Um, don't quote me on that. Uh, Israel, as a nation of 12 tribes, had been split apart. Uh, so there was King David, he unified everybody. King Solomon unified everybody and taxed the crap out of people. Uh, so they couldn't really revolt. And then Solomon died. And then the fun began. The top 10 tribes <coughs> were like, we're going to do our own thing. And then Judah, and I think Benjamin, uh, were the nation of Judah. Um, so when you hear Isaiah talking about Israel and Judah, they're, they're the separated ones. Um, they're all Israelites, but for political uh, understanding, they were, they were separate. They had two different kings. Uh, also at this time, Assyria was the main power um, the main superpower, as we would call them, in this area, in what we call the Middle East. Uh, from 900 to 609 BC, Assyria was, they were the kingdom, they were the rulers. And like today, other smaller countries formed alliances and negotiated to fight against Assyria who was kind of marching towards Egypt. They wanted to take over Egypt because Egypt then as now uh, 
had lots of natural resources, very fertile, um, lots of wealth. And there were several smaller countries uh, that were in a serious way, Judah, Israel, and Syria, named three. And the interesting thing about this is that in and of itself, those three little countries were actually a prize um, because they had wealth, they had natural resources, um, they had amazing agriculture, and they had trade. Um, because Israel, I think Judah, I'd have to look at a map, um, and Syria bordered the Mediterranean and also had trade routes through them. So lots of things were happening in this tiny area of geography. And so the Assyrians were coming. Um, they were a continual threat, we'll say. And so at this time of Isaiah, there was this constant kind of geopolitical negotiation and movement to, to try basically to thwart the Assyrians. But in the midst of that, uh, the Israelites were being called back in some ways. And so the original, uh, I'm gonna start with the original of, of the text and what, what the Jews would have heard when hearing this. And so basically what Isaiah is doing is he's using an illustration to make a point. And uh, some background on that, is that oftentimes throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we hear about God being the farmer, uh, the vineyard is Israel, and in this particular story, the bitter grapes or the sour grapes are Israel's sinful behavior. And so Isaiah starts with this story because we get, we get caught up in story, don't we? If someone starts listening like in being really specific about all of the ways that we've done something wrong, we're going to block that out. But if somebody tells a story, we were drawn in in a lot of ways and stories help us learn and grow. So Isaiah tells a story and he talks about this vineyard and how the owner of the vineyard did all the things right. The first year he cleared the land and he removed the rocks. Um, moving into the second year, he purchased the best vines that he could and planted them accordingly. And then he also put up fences and watchtowers from the rocks because that area is incredibly rocky. Judah, um, that geographic region is actually really, really good to grow grapes. And so grapes would have been uh, the, the prize crop but you had to clear around all the rocks like we do around here. There's always seems to be more and more rocks that we, that I till up anyway in my, my garden. And so from those rocks, they put up fences and put up watchtowers so that they could keep the marauders, both of the two and four-legged kind out of the, the vineyard, out of the garden. And in the third year, the vines were supposed to provide good fruit, whether to make into wine or to, to use for other purposes. But that's not what happens. Um, in some translations, it says the cultivated grapes ended up being wild grapes. 
Uh, one other translation I read, it says the wild grapes uh, were bitter. So instead of getting sweet grapes, it was bitter or sour grapes. And part of this story, especially in uh, verse seven, is where, if you want to take a look, um, at the very end, Isaiah says, and he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. They're the expectation that I talked about in terms of discipline, right? And interestingly, because I'm somewhat of a word nerd, I do not speak Hebrew or Greek, but whenever anybody talks about it, I'm interested. Um, the word bloodshed and justice are different by one letter. So they would have sounded the same. Mispah is bloodshed, mispat is justice. So if you weren't listening closely, um, it's, a, it's a play on words. And the same with cries and righteousness. Uh, there was a contrast, a pretty strong contrast between what was expected and then what was received. Uh, and as I said earlier, Israel's uh, sinful behavior were the bitter grapes, God is the farmer, and the vineyard is Israel. And if you go and end up reading verses 8 through 24 of this chapter in Isaiah, um, you'll notice that the explanation for why Israel has produced bitter grapes begins and ends with social injustice. They weren't taking care of people the way that they should. And God doesn't take kindly to that a lot of times. So I think we can all relate in some way how God's dedication and steadfastness to this vineyard, to the Israelite people, and its result in sour grapes uh, could leave God disappointed or frustrated, right? Um, especially with it happening over and over again by this point in the Israelites' history. Um, they've been around, guessing somewhere between 500 and 700 years, if not longer. Uh, that's a long time to be in relationship with a people who are cranky. For, <laughs> right? Like, and Christians have been around for 2,000 years. We are decidedly a cranky people sometimes, but I'll get to that. So, you know, there's, I think we can understand how Isaiah would say, oh, well, let me tell you what God says is going to happen to the vineyard. It's going to be a wasteland. Briars and things are going to grow up. Uh, in some ways, this is foreshadowing, the, um, not the exodus, the exile uh, of, of the Judean people. At one point, they were taken away, uh, taken to Babylon, and, and they had to figure out who they were at that point when they weren't attached to the land. And I think in some ways we can look at this and go, oh, but that was the Israelites, you know, oh, if we look at their pattern, you know, this is what they did. They walked away, they came back. It was this rhythm kind of thing, right? That was them. And yet, as I prayed about this scripture, the question that kept coming to my mind um, is how does this apply to us? Because the church fathers in the 300s said, yes, the Hebrew scriptures need to be included in our canon, in our 
packet of scripture. So assuming that they were listening to the nudging of the Holy Spirit, that these need to be included, there is something for us to learn. And so we need to figure out how it applies to us. And the thing that I kept coming back to over and over was that we need to seriously consider that we are also sour grapes. Just because we have Jesus doesn't mean we're sweet. <laughs> Unfortunately, right? And especially in the U.S., I think um, we all know of churches that are shrinking. Um, all churches are shrinking. It's not just like the small churches. The big churches are also shrinking in lots of different ways. And as I prayed about this, I was like, huh. God, what are you saying to me? What am I to say? And these three things came to mind um, for why we might be shrinking. Uh, maybe it's because we haven't done a good job being the church. Maybe we haven't been communicating in a way that the world can hear. That's an important thing. And then also, what if you've been focused on the wrong things? Um, at Hannah, this morning, I sat with one person and we had a conversation because the rest of the congregation has decided to disappear and go poof. And I think rightly so, this man felt like he had been abandoned because no one was there. He was like, I, and I, I put words in his mouth, but I was like, you're here to worship Jesus and be part of community. And it feels like you've been abandoned, hasn't it? Yeah. What if we've been focused on the wrong things? Judgment, also known as discipline, gives us the opportunity to reflect about how we need to change. It's one of the things that over and over, and over again, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're given the opportunity to hear how people were corrected and then how they chose to change. That didn't stop with the end of Testament. We're part of being in relationship with God. It's part of being a mature disciple of Christ. We have to continually being almost recreated in this image and likeness of God. Because if we, not, if we don't, then we backslide. And so if we need to seriously consider that we're also sour grapes, like the Israelites, what do we do? How do we change it? Well, I was really fascinated by the, uh, by the very fat um, commentary that I have. Very thick, right? Like, <laughs> this is... If any of you want information on commentaries, let me know. This is a good one. It's the New International Version commentary. But one of the things that had the Israelites stuck um, is that, and this is from the commentary, they could not imagine that God was so creative that he could do something completely new to keep the ancient promises. They lacked imagination. And I think in a lot of ways, as the church community, not just this place, but throughout the United States, where we're not growing, I think with creativity, 
every 500 years or so, the church goes through a major culture goes through a major upheaval. And we're about at that time, right? It's been 2000 years since Jesus walked the earth and around 500, there was a shift. Around 1000, there was a shift. Around 1500, there was a shift. And there's something is happening. And as I talked about uh, or mentioned, it's, I wonder if it's a difference in communication because, you know, for example, 50 years ago, um, there was a very specific kind of way that people were taught about Jesus and taught who Jesus was and what Jesus did for us. And that doesn't resonate with people today. I don't think like if you start out talking to someone about Jesus and saying he died for your sins, they're going to look at you like you're insane because our culture has changed. Um, but if we start off with God wants to know you now, hear me, the essence of the gospel is not changing. It's just how we communicate it. Um, we're, I think we're being invited to talk about the overwhelming love that God has for his creation and for people in general, because people feel lonely, they feel isolated, they don't know how to interact with others. They don't feel like, in a lot of ways, people don't feel like they're part of something. The church is a great thing to be a part of if we show love if we help people know how much they are loved by Christ. And so as the Israelite struggled, um, the commentary also says, the prophet has to keep calling on them to believe what God says he will do for them, to listen to the promises he makes of redemption and restoration. Like their ancestors, they really could not believe that judgment is never God's intended last word, but that his intention is to use judgment to bring about lasting hope. Judgment's never the final word. If you read, I'll say any of the prophets, or if you like Walter Brueggemann and read his book, Prophetic Imagination, if you are prophetic, and this applies to the prophets as well as anyone who has the gift of, of prophetic through spiritual gifts, two things always have to go together, judgment or discipline and hope, because judgment is not God's last word ever. It's hope. And so even when we're disciplined, you know, when it gives us the opportunity to make a change, we have the opportunity opportunity to make a change. Um, when I was in direct sales, uh, my sales director would often say, you know, you're still on God's easel. He's not done with you yet. God's not done with us. And so we have the opportunity to acknowledge lots of things that might hold us back. Our lack of creativity, like the Israelites, our stuckness, our refusal to change or to ignore God's nudges and invitations. We have an opportunity to ask for forgiveness, to acknowledge our sin, and then in the same prayer, we can also pray for God to help us change. 
because that's what makes, to me anyway, a mature disciple. It's not, it's acknowledging and owning where we fall short and then also asking God to help us, to show us how we're being called to be different. So we can pray, help me, Lord. Help me learn from my mistakes. Help me listen to your voice. Help me open to your, to your creativity. Help me see new possibilities. The list is endless from a hope standpoint. But we have to be willing to hear that we might be sour grapes. And God does it in such a way that love and grace and compassion undergird it. And that's why there's hope. It's not just the judgment side of things. There's hope that goes along with it. And that hope can create strife, like what Jesus talked about in, uh, in the Luke passage. Um, you know, two against three, three against two. Um, if we're following what God wants us to do and how we're changing and bearing good fruit, it's going to cause problems. But we might also be able to influence the world around us in such a way that we bring in new disciples and not just new disciples from another church, but actually like <laughs> new Christians and be able to teach them what it is to follow Jesus and how, how loving and gracious and merciful our God is. And that it is Jesus who saves and Jesus who sanctifies. And it's through that relationship that we're blessed and gifted. And I think to me, in a lot of ways, uh, that's what Isaiah is trying to bring the Israelite people back to. Like, look, you've made this choice. But there's hope. There's something else that God has for you if you will trust him. It's a beautiful message, I think. Um, most of us, I think, don't like to be corrected. But if we can get over that and get through it and go into the God help me change, we can honestly transform the world. Like um, the United Methodist mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. It's ushering in the kingdom of God. And that's a beautiful and holy thing. Amen.